Please turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. This morning I'll be reading verses 1 through 13. This is God's word. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Don't you wish that you could just get a momentary glimpse of what Wall Street is going to look like in 10 years? Just imagine what you could do with that information. Apple stock, stock in the company Apple, was worth $2.75 per share in 1980. Today... It's worth over $600 a share. Even if you just look back over the last 10 years, Apple stock has grown by 4,500% in the last 10 years. So if you had invested $5,000 in Apple 10 years ago, that $5,000 today would be worth $234,000. If only we knew the future. If only we could get a peek 10 years into the future and know in advance what the next big chip, you know, blue chip stock was going to be. If we only knew what was going to be the next Apple or the next Microsoft or Coca-Cola or Disney or McDonald's. If we could somehow just know what was going to happen in the future, wow, we could make a lot of money. And if you knew that, if you somehow had that knowledge, how quickly 
Would you go out and liquidate your current savings and investments and put as much of your own resources as possible into that stock that you knew was going to grow tremendously in the next decade? Who wouldn't do that? Well, what if I told you that I had a glimpse of the future and that your entire investment portfolio is going to be completely worthless in a relatively short period of time. And also that I have insider information about the future that would enable you to exchange your current investments for those that have long-term value. Now, I know there's infomercials and ads all the time that tell you that they can do that for you, but I'm here to tell you this morning, I have that kind of insider information. I have that kind of glimpse into the future, and so do you, because we have the Word of God. Over these last week, this week, and next couple weeks, we're looking at how to invest our earthly resources our time, our talent, and our treasures, how to use those earthly resources in this life for long-term benefit. How to invest what God has given us. Last week we looked at the parables of the treasure in the field. A man found his treasure while digging in a field. And we also looked at the parable that Jesus told about the pearl of great price. And we saw how the message of those two parables is that the kingdom of God is of such great value that like the man with the treasure in the field or the man who found the pearl of great price, we would be foolish to not be willing to give up all that we have in order to gain that kingdom that is of far greater value. Well, this morning I want to take that thought a little further. How do we invest in Christ's eternal kingdom? If that is the great value, if that's what is to be our treasure as disciples of Christ, how do we do that investment? How do we exchange our current wealth in this world for eternal wealth in the next world? How do we do that? Well, this parable that Jesus told was meant to give us insight into how to do that kind of investing. He gives us a pretty unlikely role model here for investing. Jesus tells the story here of a pretty despicable character, really. He was the business manager for a very wealthy landowner. The landowner must have owned big, productive plots of land. And he hired this man to manage his properties and particularly to manage those who would rent his properties Sounds like it was kind of a sharecropping system where renters would sign an agreement to live on the land and work the land that belonged to this wealthy landowner. And in return, these renters would, at the time of the harvest, would give back a portion of what they had harvested off the land to the landowner. And so as that played out, it says that this manager, as he was hired to oversee all those renters and make sure that they were giving the landowner what they owed, it says that he wasted or squandered his master's assets. Now, this probably was due to mismanagement. 
as opposed to embezzlement. When you read that at first, you might think he was skimming off the top or embezzling in some way. Probably not, because there's no hint in here of him being prosecuted for what he did. It was nothing, so you know, so to speak, legally wrong that he could be prosecuted for. Probably it was just mismanagement through either either laziness or foolishness. But he hadn't handled the renter as well, and he had wasted the profit that the landowner should have gained from the land. You really get the idea he was probably lazy when you hear what he says in verse 3, because when he's confronted with his mismanagement, he says, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So either he had some great physical impairment or he was just lazy, didn't want to dig, and he was too proud to beg. So what's he going to do? He's in dire straits. He's about to be fired as a manager. He's never going to get a job in that community as a manager again, having been fired for mismanagement. So what's he going to do? He can't dig. He can't beg. He won't beg. There's no severance package in those days. There's no public welfare. What's he going to do? So when the manager tells him to turn in his books... You know, to get his books in order and turn them in. He has a very brief amount of time. And while he ponders his dilemma, he comes up with a scheme. He says, this scheme is so that, to quote him, people may receive me into their houses. In other words, he's trying to feather his nest. He's trying to prepare for his future by putting people into his own debt. And so what he does is he calls the renters in one by one. And he, and Jesus gives two examples. The first debtor, the first renter comes, and he owes the landowner from his harvest, probably of olive trees, from his harvest he owes the landowner a hundred measures of oil. Now, if you have footnotes in your Bible, you'll probably see that a hundred measures, using that measurement from that day, a hundred measures of oil would be 875 gallons of olive oil that he owed to the landowner. Well, the manager says to him, okay, you owe 875 gallons, you owe a hundred measures of oil. He says, quickly, <laughs> do this quick, I've got a very short amount of time and I don't want anybody catching me what I'm doing here, quickly rewrite your contract for half of that amount, 50 measures instead of 100 measures of oil. Now, you might think that the debtor or the renter would suspect something was up, but that's probably not the case because managers typically would have the authority to make these kinds of changes, particularly if there was bad weather, if it was a a, 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 the growing season wasn't what was expected. Managers had the right to change the amounts of what was expected. So the renter probably thought that this was the manager was acting on behalf of the landowner to reduce the debt. And so he reduces it by 50%. Brings another debtor in who had who owed 100 measures of wheat, which translates into about 1,000 bushels of wheat. And he says instead of 1,000 bushels of wheat... Let's make it 800 bushels a week. Significant savings on what he owed. And again, the debtor would have thought that the landowner was his benefactor, the one that was doing him this great favor. But really, realizing the manager was the one he owed his gratitude to. And so what does the manager get from this cooking of the books? 
He gets huge favors that he can call in when needed. So that when he's fired, when he's out there, has no way to provide for himself, he's got all these other renters who will receive him into their house, give give him meals, people that he can call in favors from. And this is where the story has an interesting twist to it. Because in verse 8, as Jesus wraps up the story, the parable, he says, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, I'm sure that the landowner was furious when he heard how much his manager had cost him. He had already cost him a lot in his mismanagement. Now he's cost him a lot in terms of rewriting all these contracts. The owner realized, undoubtedly, that he couldn't undo what his manager had done. He couldn't just go back to these debtors and say, wait a minute, that wasn't right. You really owe me twice as much as what it's what the manager told you, because that would totally trash his reputation in the community, because everybody thought that it was his idea. So the landowner realizes his hands are tied. The manager had gotten these favors. He had lost this money, but there's nothing he could do about it. And so there's a begrudging admiration for his shrewdness, his cleverness, his wisdom in how he had provided for himself using his owner's resources. Now, a lot of commentators, and I'm sure a lot of you even, the first time you think about that, it's kind of troubling, isn't it, that Jesus would use a story like this to say how we should live in the kingdom? But Jesus is not commending the manager either for his mismanagement or for his dishonesty, his deception, or his greediness. That's not what Jesus is commending him for. What he's saying we should admire there is his shrewdness, his cleverness in how he used the resources at his disposal. A couple weeks ago, there was a big art theft. I don't know if you read it in the paper or heard about it. The big art theft over in the Netherlands stole some really famous paintings by artists like Monet and Picasso and, and Matisse. And as I was reading the article about that art theft, you know, they were talking about how that art museum had a state-of-the-art security system, alarm system. And it said that the police that were investigating were admiring the thieves. Now, they weren't admiring them for their thievery. They weren't admiring them for what they did wrong. They were admiring them for the cleverness, 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 anyway, the wisdom of how they went about stealing these pieces of art. It's the same thing as saying Adolf Hitler was a great military strategist. I don't know if he was or not, but let's say he was. You could say You didn't like what Hitler did with his military, but you can say he was a brilliant strategist. Or you could say he was great uh, uh, at PR. He was very charismatic. You can admire certain aspects about how he did what he did without actually approving of what he did. So that's the kind of thing Jesus is saying here. This man was shrewd. And then he says to us, he says to his disciples, it says at the beginning, this was a parable told to his disciples, those who have already come to him in faith, those that were already following him, those that had already acknowledged him as their Lord, he says to disciples, be like this manager. 
Not in being greedy or dishonest, but in being shrewd. Shrewd in using the resources that have been given to you. Be shrewd. Invest shrewdly. Now again, this parable is not about how you get into the kingdom. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been told to disciples. It's told to those who are already in the kingdom. You get into the kingdom by grace. You get into Christ's kingdom by believing he died for your sins and believing that he's been raised from the dead. By putting your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, that's how you get into the kingdom. Once you're into the kingdom, this instruction is for you. Now that you've been saved by grace, invest shrewdly the resources of this life that you've been given. Jesus gave us an incredible challenge when he said, be wise or be as shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. And he applies this principle in this parable to how we use earthly things. So how do you invest in a spiritual kingdom that you can't see, you can't touch, you can't taste? How do you invest in a spiritual kingdom using earthly resources? Well, I think there's three messages in this parable. First of all, invest your earthly resources like a son of light. Think like a son of light. Believe like a son of light. Invest like you are a son of light. In other words, what Jesus is saying when he calls us that, he says you are God's enlightened people. You're not investing in the dark. You're not to invest short-sightedly. You're to invest as though you have been enlightened by God about the kingdom of Christ. You see the big picture. Jesus basically says to his disciples here, the sons of this world are wiser in using their money for their earthly well-being than the sons of light are in using earthly money to seek their future well-being. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, given this dishonest, unbelieving manager's worldview, he invested wisely the resources that had been given to him. He lived with a materialistic, self-centered, temporal worldview. A world where there is no God, and death is the end, and survival goes to the fittest. And if that's your worldview then do whatever it takes to hoard as much earthly stuff as you can and to manipulate others to serve you. That's a logically consistent, shrewd way of using your resources if that world is true. Maximize your pleasure, minimize your pain. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That's how the manager lived. That was his worldview. Therefore, he lived and invested shrewdly. But the reason you're here this morning, hopefully, is because you haven't bought into that worldview. If you're here this morning as a son or daughter of the light, you have been enlightened by the Holy Spirit. You've been enlightened by the Word of God. You have an entirely different worldview. And the Bible, God's Word, gives us a view of life, of history, of kings and kingdoms, that will change the way that you use your earthly resources. I remember back in the 1980s when I was finally got out of school, starting a family, starting a career, 
sat down with a Christian investment counselor, like many of you have, I'm sure. I asked for advice, wisdom on how to save for the future, how to invest, how to use my resources. And I remember he talked to me a lot about investing from a Christian worldview. And what he had to sell me in light of investing from a Christian worldview was stocks that didn't invest in what he called sin stocks or companies that make their profit from sinful activities, whether it be abortion or alcohol and tobacco, whatever you might want to call a sin stock, something that you make money that's detrimental to culture or to people in particular. And it wasn't until much later that I began to understand that investing... When God gives me resources to invest, it's a lot more than about what I don't invest in. It's a lot more than not investing in things that are sinful. It's about investing the things in things that are really valuable. Things that the kingdom would advance by. Wise investing is about the kingdom of Christ This is a passage you may not think of in terms of investment, but I I, I believe very strongly this is talking about how we invest earthly resources. This is Colossians chapter 3. You maybe never thought about this passage in relation to how you use your money, your time, your talent, your treasures. But this is what it says in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. There's your worldview. That's a basic summary of your worldview. Christ has been raised from the dead. He has ascended to the right hand of God in heaven. He is seated there on the throne as the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And your life is now hidden with him. Your treasure is now in heaven. Your future is in his kingdom. Your value is at the foot of his throne. Notice what Paul says in verse 5. Those are the first four verses. The very next verse says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. In light of the fact that Christ is on the throne and his kingdom is eternal and your treasure is in heaven, in light of that, don't covet. Don't long for earthly wealth and prosperity and the things that belong to others, the riches of this world. Don't covet those things because why? Because covetousness is idolatry. It's worshiping a false god. In other words, as Jesus says at the end of the passage that we just read, you cannot serve God and money. You've got to pick your Lord. You cannot serve God and money. So the benefit of a biblical worldview is that we do know what will happen in the future. Christ is on the throne and he's coming again to bring to fulfillment all of his promises of the kingdom. 
So, secondly, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that you should invest your resources, not just because you're a son of the light, but because you were going to live forever. These 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years in this world is just a passing moment in light of your eternal well-being. Live as, uh, invest as though you're going to live forever. Look at verses 10 and 11. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? I think what Jesus is saying there is that your checkbook is the gauge of your heart. How you use the resources that have been placed in your hands Indicate where your heart is and how you're going to use, no matter how many resources you have, how you will use them. Have you ever had the thought, you know, I'm kind of strapped in my life right now. I can't afford to really give to ministry, to give to the kingdom. But boy, if I ever somehow got $10 million or $20 million, boy, I would just, I would give to missions, I would give to ministry, I would... How do you know that? What Jesus is saying here is look at how you use what you have. Then you'll know how you'd use 10 million. He who is faithful in the little that you have now will be faithful in much if the Lord were to place that in your hands. We aren't measured by how many resources we have under our management. We're measured by how we use them, whether it's little or much. And then look at verse 12, interesting verse in verse 12. He kind of says the same thing, but there's a twist in verse 12. He says, and if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what is your own? Don't you expect him to say that the other way? If you're not faithful in what is your own, who's going to entrust you with somebody else's belongings? That's how we would say it. But Jesus says it backwards. He says, if you're not faithful in what is somebody else's, who's going to give you What will be your own? And he's driving home a point there that we are managers in this life, owners in the next life. That's a very important investment principle. We are managers in this life, owners of true riches, what he calls true riches in the life to come. In other words, we don't get to keep what we have now. It's placed under our control temporarily And how we use the resources we have here and now will determine the riches that we are given that we will have for eternity. The really valuable riches of the kingdom. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 verse 38, give and it will be given to you. Give, what he's saying there in this investment principle, give of earthly resources and it will be given to you in kingdom currency. Give your earthly resources and you will gain eternal, true riches which will be yours forever. That's what he's saying. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And another corollary is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. 
Do you understand what Jesus is saying there in relation to how we manage earthly resources? He's saying, if Christ has not been raised, then everything that you've given towards the eternal kingdom is lost. All the investment that you've put forth in Christ's kingdom, if he's not been raised from the dead, everything you've invested in the kingdom is lost. But, Paul goes on to say, he has indeed been raised from the dead. So, since he's been raised from the dead, everything you've invested in his eternal kingdom is now true riches which belong to you for eternity. Invest like you're going to live forever. Not just for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Invest like you're going to live forever. Which brings me to the last point. Invest your resources in eternal relationships. Here's the key. This is the most important point to take away from this parable. You, if you're going to invest eternally, need to invest in the primary kingdom industry. What is the primary kingdom industry? Making disciples of Jesus Christ. Invest in the eternal souls of people. Jesus says in verse 9, here's his bottom line. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. He says, you know how that manager used his owner's resources so that he could make friends that would receive them into their homes in this world? He says, think bigger. Think with a kingdom perspective. Think with the point of view of God's word. And go out there and make friends that will receive receive you into eternal dwellings. That will be there at the gates of heaven to accept you and welcome you when you get there. That's what he's saying. Make eternal friends with earthly resources. It's that simple. And how do you do that? By making disciples. Jesus is talking about investing in the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them everything that I have taught you. Invest in that work. And you'll gain eternal true riches, which will truly be yours. So we're talking about spending as much of your earthly resources as possible in evangelism, teaching Sunday school, preaching, mission work, whatever is productive for making disciples. Put your resources there as much as possible. That's what Jesus is advocating. It's interesting, later in chapter 16, he tells another story which vividly illustrates this. Beginning in verse 19, he tells a story about a rich man and a beggar at his gate named Lazarus. He says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what, with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And it goes on to, Jesus goes on to say that the, the, the rich man in the torments of hell 
cried out just for a drop of water to provide just an infinitesimal moment of relief from his suffering. But Abraham, do you remember how Abraham responds down in verse 25? Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. And Lazarus, in like manner, received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us is a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here may not be able. Do you hear, in light of what the parable of the unrighteous manager, you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, Lazarus was at your gate every day. You had years of daily opportunities to make a friend for eternity. To receive Lazarus into your home, to feed him, to care for him, to disciple him, whatever. To really invest yourself in someone whom you could know and value and treasure for eternity. But instead you used your earthly resources for your own comfort and convenience. You missed your opportunity to invest in the kingdom. Back in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 and 13, one more little story Jesus told. He says, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. You see how this principle ties into every story Jesus tells? You will be repaid. You will receive true riches if you invest your earthly resources in the well-being and discipleship of others. Your eternal perspective must drive how you invest your earthly resources. I just, if it, at the risk of sounding a bit self-indulgent, let me just, I've spent time this week reflecting on all the people that have invested in my ministry. All that my parents gave and sacrificed for me so that I can be here today preaching God's word. All that my wife and my children have sacrificed so that I can be here preaching God's word. People who gave money for scholarships so that I could get through seminary training so that I could be here preaching God's word. Mentors who invested time and energy and and resources into me so that I can be here today preaching God's word. Congregations of God's people, faithful congregations who gave their tithes and their offerings so that I could be here today preaching God's word. And so as I think about everybody who's invested in my own personal ministry, I realize that every sermon I preach, every class that I teach, every Bible study that I lead, every person that I mentor and disciple, every leader that I train, every person that I counsel in the word of God, The payoff keeps going back to all my investors. And it's a hundredfold, maybe a thousandfold, to all who have invested in my own personal ministry. When I got to the end of my 20 years at uh, my last church, they had a big going away party and they, somebody put together a video of people, pictures from my 20 years there and Pictures of people, families, children that I had baptized, people that I had married, people that I had counseled. 
And when they started to play the video, I'm like, of course, wanted to kind of hide under the seat. But, you know, they started playing this video and the song started playing as the soundtrack, the background music for the video. And it was this old hit they had from like 20 years ago, this Christian song. I hated this song. They started to play. I can't believe they put this song to this video. It's called Thank You. You may know the song. Sappy song. I used to hate it. But then as I watched this video and looked at the faces of all these people and all these expressions of thanksgiving for ministry, and then I listened to the lyrics of the song in a little little bit of a new light. Let me read them for you quickly. This is the, the scene, and I admit this is not great poetry, but the scene is in heaven. A friend is watching a friend, a minister of the word in some way, being greeted in heaven. That's the background of the song. This is what it says. Someone called your name. You turned and saw this young man, and he was smiling as he came. And he said, friend, you may not know me now. And then he said, but wait, you used to teach my Sunday school when I was only eight. And every week you would say a prayer before the class would start. And one day when you had said that prayer, I asked Jesus in my heart, thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I'm so glad you gave. Then another man stood before you and said, Remember the time a missionary came to your church and his pictures made you cry? You didn't have much money, but you gave it anyway. Jesus took the gift you gave, and that's why I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. I am a life that was changed. One by one they came, far as the eyes could see, each life somehow touched by your generosity. Little things that you had done, sacrifices you made, they were unnoticed on earth, in heaven, now proclaimed. And I know that up in heaven you're not supposed to cry, but I'm almost sure there were tears in your eyes. As Jesus took your hand and you stood before the Lord, he said, My child, look around you, for great is your reward. That's the kind of investment. That's a very biblical message. Bad poetry, but a great biblical message of the kind of investing that I'm offering to you to be able to do. We're talking about how you use your time, your talents, and your treasures. What does it mean to store up treasure in heaven? Invest. Invest like a son and daughter of the light. Invest like you're going to live forever. And that means investing in making disciples. It means investing in your children. Not just that they have a great career and nice house and nice car. Invest in making your children disciples. Invest in your local church ministry. Invest in your pastoral staff. Invest in curriculum. Invest in RUF. Invest in the outreach of your ministry. Yes, I'll say it. Invest in the trellis campaign, the building fund. Not because we want a big, impressive building, but because we want to make disciples and we need space to do that. It's not about a building. It's about changing lives and making disciples. Invest in the larger church's ministry. Planting churches in our presbytery. Christian schools. Teaching ministries. Invest in missions abroad. Taking the gospel to those who haven't heard it yet, wherever they are. That's what Jesus is asking you to do with your earthly resources. Shift your investments from this life to the eternal kingdom. 
and you will be truly rich. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this eternal perspective that comes only from your word and from your spirit. Help us to order our lives accordingly. Help us to realign our priorities. Help us to invest like eternal sons and daughters of light. Use us in our time and our talent and our treasures to make disciples in this life that they may welcome us into eternity. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.